Welcome, everybody. You are officially in a podcast. Can I just have a little noise from the crowd so our listeners can get a sense? (laughs) That's quite exciting. Okay, so this is a a bit of a first for our humble podcast, isn't it, Tom? It is. We've never had that noise in a lecture theatre before either, have we? No. Yeah, it's the first in our careers as well. Oh, and there's someone at the door. Appreciate oh, yeah. there we go. Welcome, you're now in a podcast too. Okay, so you're officially in a podcast. Welcome. We've got a very special episode today. Please don't swear. I'll try not to as well. And we are gathering at a really momentous time and a momentous week, actually, in Wales' educational history. And we've had the kind of timely arrival of our new curriculum and assessment arrangements. They hit Hub on Tuesday, the 28th of January, which was heralded by our Minister for Education, Kirsty Williams, who stated, now is the time to digest and think about how this new curriculum will work for you and your pupils. And it seems that teachers are talking about curriculum now more than ever. And we want our pre-service teachers, you, our initial teacher education trainees, to be part of that national dialogue. For Professor Donaldson, the road to curriculum reform began with a simple question as he travelled Wales seeking multiple views on their aspirations for curriculum reform. His question was, wouldn't it be great if... The five years that have followed the 2015 publication of his seminal report, Successful Futures, involved the blood, sweat and tears of many professionals toiling over the actualisation of Donaldson's recommendations. And this week, I note the inclusion of a crucial advice from Welsh Government to schools about designing your own curriculum. So we are all in this room going to be curriculum designers together. We've all played and are yet to continue to play a part in the national conversation and now we gather today to ask a panel of experts from a variety of educational settings their views on the challenges and opportunities that await us as we work towards the ultimate implementation deadline dun, 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 of September 2022. So I would like to extend a really warm welcome to our panel. I'm going to list them first and then we're going to hear their individual Uh, presentations where they start to give their views on what those challenges and opportunities are from their perspective. So our panel comprises of Dr Kevin Smith from Cardiff University, Gareth Rain from St Joseph's RC Primary School, Barry Crompton from Stanwell School, Nikki Hagendyke from EAS, Education Achievement Service Consortium, and Sunny Singh from Welsh Government. So we've got a really great panel for you today. Um, welcome to you all. Do you want to just make a noise so that we know you're here? <laughs> Thank you. Hello, morning. <laughs> we do. They are real. We have them in the room. Um, and we are going to start with Dr. Kevin Smith, who is going to give us some of his thoughts on curriculum reform. I wasn't nervous until I was told I can't swear. (laughs) So this will be a challenge. Um, My name is Kevin Smith. As you can tell, I'm not originally from Wales. I'm originally from the U.S., um, where I was an ICT teacher for uh, secondary school. I started out teaching in in an urban setting in Cincinnati, Ohio, and then went out to kind of a suburban setting. And I think between those two extremes, I kind of learned... Uh, more than I expected to, and, and definitely more than I did in my placement as a, as a training teacher. And I think it was those, that dichotomy of those experiences that really kind of triggered my curiosity about what do we mean by curriculum, and what do we mean by pedagogy. 
and how do those concepts differ from the way we teach our, our instructional methods, our values, our beliefs, those kinds of things. So that's kind of where it started from. So that's where I'm going to start talking to you. I'm going to start telling you a little bit about how I started theorizing my practice. Because my role, even though I lecture on education at Cardiff University, my role is, is a curriculum theorist. And so my PhD focused specifically on curriculum and, uh, and the particular field, the particular area within cur curriculum um, theory that I work in is the, the critical perspective or the reconceptualist perspective. So you might ask yourself, what do you mean by curriculum theory? Well, curriculum theory is simply it's an attempt to conceptualize, reconceptualize, examine, construct, and understand curriculum. It involves different perspectives, assumptions, and philosophical dispositions. It's primarily concerned with values, purpose, the history of education, and it, or curriculum, and its future. A lot of times we think about curriculum as uh, a combination and an amalgamation of documents or the content of things we want to teach pupils, um, but there are broader, uh, more critical, uh, more expansive definitions of curriculum that can aid us in deciding how we want to teach, why we want to teach, what we expect when we teach those kinds of things. I'll give you some major categories of curriculum theory just to kind of think about and some names of some folks that work in those categories um, if you want to do some later uh, some study. So there's a social needs approach which is uh, learner focused and this assumes that the sociocultural needs of the pupil are the starting point for the curriculum. So one of its main proponents was John Dewey, another is William Kilpatrick, and Harold Rugg. And so they believed that we have to start first with the, with the learner and what their needs are, and then we move out from there. And of course, there's lots of proponents and opponents for that particular view, um, but it, it's, it's still a, uh, a persuasive and, and prominent uh, field of, of curriculum theory. Another is called social efficiency, and basically, this assumes that the characteristics of society determine the nature of the curriculum. So what we teach people, why, how it's organized, basically focuses on the needs of society. Moving on from that, you have social needs from a reconstructionist perspective. And the question that you could think back into the 1930s, I believe it was, with a, an individual named George Counts. And he wrote a paper, said, dare the schools build a new social order. And so what he was saying was, is that schools could serve as sites of social transformation. And by social transformation, he meant how do we increase concerns over social justice and equality? And so people that work within the social reconstructionist vein could be uh, Francis Klein, George Counts, of course. Um, there is another perspective called the academic or philosophical rationale. And this is basically concerned with the nature of knowledge. Um, how do we legitimize knowledge? How do we uh, um, help pupils acquire the tools to participate in the Western cultural tradition, for instance? So we talk a lot about disciplines. People like Hearst and Phoenix, um, they take a very epistemological approach. And by epistemology, I simply mean claims about knowledge. What do we claim is knowledge? How do we justify those claims? How would we recognize knowledge if we saw it, for instance? Those kinds of questions. And then finally, um, there's a reconceptualist approach. So like I said before, there was, there's this idea that curriculum is simply a collection of documents and it's the knowledge within those documents and it's, and it's you start here and you end here and it's linear and those types of things. And that idea has been around for a very long time. We could probably point to an individual named Ralph Tyler who wrote a book called The Basic Principles of uh, Curriculum and Instruction, I believe is what it's called. And uh, he had a very kind of scientific approach and it was a very commonsensical approach. And it's a good approach, but it, some people felt it was very limited. 
And in the late 60s, um, an individual by uh, Schwab uh, was writing about curriculum. And he said, basically, the field is dead. He used the term moribund. The field of curriculum is moribund. We've, we've gotten to the point where we hit saturation. Where are we going to go next? And the reconceptualists came forward and said, oh, you know, we are going to turn the idea of curriculum on its head. And so we have folks like William Pinar, Basil Bernstein, Bourdieu and Passeron, Michael Apple, Jean Onion, Anion, uh, Elliot Eisner, Henry Giroux, Lawrence Stenhouse, Gail McCutcheon, Dwayne Hubner, Bill Pinar again, Ivor Goodson, Patty Lather, and, then, and the list goes on and on. So Pinar, for instance, um, they wrote, he wrote an excellent book with a bunch of other folks called Understanding Curriculum. And in that, the first four chapters really kind of set out kind of the history of curriculum and curriculum development and what we mean by curriculum studies and curriculum design and curriculum theory, because believe it or not, they're all different. But then he said, what if we understood curriculum as an autobiographical text? Or what if we could understand curriculum as a racial text, as a feminist text, as a uh, homosexual text, as a heterosexual text? All these different ways and perspectives, standpoints of understanding curriculum. And so that's kind of the field that I work in. I'm, I, I like to say I'm a, a reconceptualist. I, I, I sympathize with that field within um, curriculum theory. But I also come from a very critical perspective. Well, so. What's that mean in terms of my role for the new curriculum for Wales? I didn't have much of a role, to be honest. Um, I was invited by Welsh government to uh, put some give some input on the Welsh and international perspectives, which was great and enjoyed that. I've worked with some of the AOE groups um, in their network meetings, and uh, I've done some work with consortia and helping teachers kind of understand what we mean by curriculum <laughs> studies and design and theory. Unfortunately, in Wales, we just don't have a history of engaging in curriculum theory because largely, I believe, in due, uh, due in part to the new curriculum in 1988, where everything was so prescribed that it didn't really require teachers to sit back and think about how, how to theorize their practice in terms of, of curriculum. So uh, my, in terms of challenges, my concerns are is that we haven't moved far from that position. So I think we need, as, as curriculum workers, in Wales, we need to work on challenging ideological and traditional established thoughts about curriculum. We need to think about purpose and educational aims. For example, we need to enlarge conceptualizations of curriculum beyond its content and to encourage teachers to re-engage with their purpose for teaching and what kind of pupils they hope will emerge from compulsory schooling. We need to challenge the regulation of teachers through outcomes or through basic accountability or basing accountability on external performance. This encourages a technical approach, a means-end kind of approach, where we don't really think about much other than getting to the end. Uh, this kind of approach values efficiency over quality, over an aesthetic experience at school. And it focuses curriculum work on external performance and the outcomes, the indicators of that, rather than on the larger aims and purposes of education. So I'd like to see a values-led, purpose-led approach to teaching and learning and curriculum that acknowledges more than just the cognitive science of learning, which is important, but not the entirety of learning. I'd like to also appreciate the aesthetic experience of learning and what Dewey referred to as the transaction between the internal conditions of individuals and the external conditions of their learning environment. So if you think for a minute about what your uh, purpose in teaching will be, what your number one priority in the classroom is, I, I, this is kind of the thing I repeat a lot, but think for a moment, what is your top priority in the classroom? Now, I asked this question of about 200 teachers a couple of years ago in Wales, and about 10% of them said, deliver the curriculum, which is kind of uninspired. I had other people say, oh, to, um, 
help them develop a love of learning, and we went through all these different responses. The number one response, over 21% of the teachers that responded said to help pupils achieve their potential, which is bull. It's not my answer. It's not, I had to, yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so why is that such a bad answer, to help people achieve their, pupils achieve their potential? Well, it's an empty signifier. It's symbolically important, but it's ultimately meaningless. How can you help someone achieve their potential? In order to do that, you have to be able to understand and know their potential. If they're going to achieve it, it must have a limit. Can we say that we can understand the limit of someone's potential? And if someone, what is, what is potential? Is there a singular potential? Are there multiple potentials? Are they potentials that run parallel? Are they linear? Do they move in different directions? Is it a constellation instead of, uh, of a linear thing? And also, what happens when someone reaches their potential? If you're in a lesson and suddenly a student says, Miss, I think I just achieved my potential. What are you going to do? What are they going to do? And I think as human beings, do we want to achieve our potential? Where do we go from there? And so what happens is when we say, I want young people to achieve their potential, it's because we're not thinking carefully enough about what we hope to achieve as teachers. It's the answer we give when we don't know what to say. So we have to stop and think. What do I want to say about what I believe, what my outcomes are, what my values are as a teacher? So my advice to you is to read, read, read. And that there are philosophies of education that are also employed as ideologies. An ideology is an answer waiting for a question. The old adage is it's a hammer looking for a nail. And if we ask the question, how shall we educate people, someone will rush forward with an answer with their ideology about how it should work when really these philosophies of education, these normative philosophies that we have, should be used as frameworks of questioning and thinking and reasoning that help us answer these questions. They don't immediately present the answer for us, they walk us through the process of logically and reasonably looking at evidence, thinking about theoretical claims and coming together to an answer that might work. So I want you to think philosophically about your practice. I want you to try and be post-ideological if possible. Understand your own biases, but also look and understand those of others and think. Be critical, be curious, be active. Think deliberately. Think and deliberate over and discuss and write down your pedagogical creed or pedagogical statement. And by pedagogical statement, I want you to think, what do you believe about teaching? What do you value as a teacher? How do you justify those values and beliefs? And how do you imagine those will be reflected in your practice? And how do you imagine you'll evaluate the impact of your values and beliefs on your practice and by extension your pupils' educational experiences? So you need to review, review and revise this position as you carry on through your education and into your practice. I want you to reevaluate re your thoughts, challenge your assumptions. Consider the evidence, empirical and theoretical. Understand your values, purpose, and pedagogy as a work in progress, a progressively unfolding masterwork of praxis, the constant interaction of theory, critical reflection, and experience. But how do we go about doing that? Well, back to reading again. So I'm going to give you some reading suggestions, some recommendations. I brought my books. I want to show you my books. <laughs> All right. This book, education, Experience in Education by John Dewey, written in 1938, is the most succinct and concise uh, theory uh, or expression of his uh, theory of experience. I've got Ralph Tyler, Basic Principles of Curriculum and Instruction, which is a good kind of introductory text to looking at curriculum design. Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. This is a, a book that I hate to sound cliche and twee and whatever, but it changed my life as a teacher. 
it resonated with me strongly, particularly as I was working in Cincinnati with the pupils I had. And uh, I get emotional talking about it sometimes because it's, it's something that I love to share with people. Not because I think it's right or correct, although there's much that I do agree with and am persuaded by, but because it was such a breath of fresh air for me, particularly in my uh, initial teacher education experience or what I experienced in that. Another fantastic book that I can't recommend highly enough is by Elliot Eisner, The Educational Imagination on the Design and Evaluation of School Programs. This was written in, I think, the 70s. This is like a 1985 version. Amazing. Elliot Eisner, anything you find from him, I just think is fantastic. And then, of course, I have, this is a great book. And you can get this rather cheaply. I, uh, I think it's out of print, but you can get older copies. This is Curriculum, Alternative Approaches, Ongoing Issues by Marsh and Willis, which is kind of a survey of curriculum from all different points of view and perspectives. There are some other books that I don't have with me right now that I recommend. Deschooling Society by Ivan Illich. Um, Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. I think um, anything that we can introduce to you that involves perspectives outside of the norm. Sometimes we have a lot of stuff that we're given that are kind of the traditional texts, but also you need to see from things from different perspectives. So those are my reading recommendations, my advice, and, uh, and what I think are some of the challenges we face here in developing curriculum in Wales. Thank you. Dr. Kevin Smith, never a stronger case to read, reflect, research and inquire, to use our buzzwords here at Cardiff Met. Without further ado, we are um, on a time limit. I'm going to introduce our next guest. So we're going to be looking to a school perspective now. And um, I'm delighted to introduce Gareth Rain, who comes to us from St. Joseph's RC Primary School. Um, and he is going to be talking to us about how in his school they have interpreted and are beginning to move forward forward with the curriculum reforms. Thank you very much, Gareth. Thank you, Emma. Thanks to Emma and Tom for inviting me here today. 20 years ago, I was sitting where you are now as a student in what was called UIC in those days. Um, and to return to you today as head teacher talking in the week that the new curriculum was published at a very, very excited and crucial time is a privilege. So thank you for allowing me to join you. The new curriculum for Wales is a, is a test. It's a test of the ambition of a very young democracy. It's a test of the novel principles of subsidiarity and co-construction. It's a test of the ability of our workforce in Welsh schools to achieve success with an experimental curriculum model. As with all tests, there's the potential for success and there's the potential for failure. This is why Dr. Kevin Smith, Barry, Nikki, Sunny, and I'm here today, because we believe that we need to get out and talk to practitioners in our schools and also future practitioners so that we can recommend texts so that we can hopefully help you to reflect on what you're doing already and what you will do in the future and inspire you to think to challenge to not just listen here today but to go away and form your own ideas about education so as a bit of a journey in St Joseph's um, our curriculum pioneer journey started in January of 2017 but our curriculum development journey and why we have ended up where we are right now, and there's never a finished product and never a finished school, but how things are running in St. Joseph's now actually started a little bit earlier in about late 2015. In 
July 2016, and I'm going to jump around with my story just a little bit. I was invited to the Liberty Stadium in Swansea to talk to Pioneer Schools about something that we'd been doing, which was called the Leonardo Effect. And the Leonardo Effect is when you take principles of trying to capture children's imaginations, trying to enthuse them in their learning through art and science. And just like Leonardo himself, to make children want to see the world in imaginative, engaging ways where they can try and understand their life and what's going on around them. We'd had some success with the use of the Leonardo effect, and so we were invited to speak about how this could impact upon the new curriculum and the direction of travel at that time. I need to just take a little step back a year before that. When Successful Futures was published in February of 2015, St Joseph's School was inspected then in the March of 2015. And we'd been using the Leonardo effect for just over a year. And as I said, we'd had some success. But right at that moment, we were starting to see some cracks in that way of working. Uh, the initial engagement through our teachers and through our pupils in a very positive uh, and inspirational way of teaching, where we tried to uh, do very interesting things to grab imagination. So for instance, we had a flight topic where we had a helicopter that came to land on the field and we had rockets firing and model aeroplanes and making kites and all wonderful things where children could take learning off in their own directions. These were inspirational and they grabbed children's detention and they, and they, wanted, them, uh, they wanted to come to school more than ever before. When we had a rainforest topic, we dressed the school as a rainforest and children wanted to take, again, learning off in their own directions, looking at coffee or looking at chocolate or looking at the destruction of the rainforests. And this was really, really engaging. But after about a year of this way of working, we realised that the initial success that we had achieved was actually starting to flounder a little because the previously rigorous curriculum that was in place uh, helped the children to build on their skills with their imagination, with their engagement. But now there was much less rigour and less content within the curriculum that we were studying and now children's outcomes maybe even started to fall a little bit. Of course, at this time when Estin came, I didn't tell them this. Um, but Estin... Uh, judged teaching in the school to be good. Everything was good or even with some excellence, but we had just a few concerns. Actually, Estin said that teaching is only just good in the school. Um, and you wouldn't read that in the report. The report is actually really, really positive, but it, we, we actually felt that this was accurate. So we started to engage in some of the things that Dr. Kevin's just talked about. We'd read lots about curriculum theory and design from Dewey uh, to lots of different people. And at that moment, I actually fortuitously heard a programme on Radio 4 uh, where E.D. Hirsch was speaking. And Dr. Kevin just mentioned E.D. Hirsch briefly. E.D. Hirsch was talking about how in schools across the Western world, he believed that we were getting things a little bit wrong. Or in fact, more than a little bit wrong. We were actually making major mistakes that was not just uh, keeping children to their current conditions, but wasn't going to allow them to break free of the oppression and the deprivation of poverty. And he said that what's happening is that if we don't engage children in the greatest things that have ever been thought and said, whatever you think they are, but if we don't have a rigorous and content-rich curriculum that inspire children, what you're actually doing is helping them to live in a world where they already exist. You need to create content in your curriculum that will allow them to know about the world in which they live, the wider world, not just the local area. This was fascinating. I thought that this was brilliant. He talked about social justice in a different way to how I'd heard social justice mentioned before. 
We then continued to learn about other ways and other things, and this led on to cognitive science and the research of cognitive science and the use of it in the classroom. And as again Dr. Kevin said, this isn't uh, the end. Cognitive science isn't the answer to all things. But by looking at cognitive science, by looking at how we know what we know and how we learn, we can then take those answers into the classroom, we can take those ideas and help children to learn in what we think are the best possible ways. So two of the books that really influenced us were Cultural Literacy by E.D. Hirsch, published in the early 80s. It became a bestseller in the way that Stephen Hawkins became a bestseller. Everybody said, let's buy this, but actually very few people actually read it. It just stayed on their shelves. And then we had Why Don't Students Like School? which I think probably changed my practice and the practice in our school more than uh, perhaps any other single text in terms of planning for lessons, planning learning. Dan Willingham, in this book, talks about nine principles that cognitive science now pretty much knows beyond doubt. And as, of course, we know with all science, it is only as good as the current thinking and the current research. So in other words, these nine principles that right now we think are true might at some stage be thought not to be so. One of those principles, and I don't have time to go into all nine, of course, one of those principles is that uh, if we imagine what children are actually doing within a lesson and what they're thinking, memory is the residue of thought. Okay, I just want to say that again. Memory is the residue of thought. So if right now you're engaging in this and you're thinking about what I'm saying, you're much more likely to remember it. If, however, you're on your phone, if you're on WhatsApp, if you're having a chat, then you're much less likely to think about it. If you're thinking about Love Island, or if you're thinking about the rugby matches over this weekend, that's what you're going to remember from me talking to you right now. Memory is the residue of thought. It will only transfer what's going on in your working memory to long-term memory if you keep it in that working memory and you process it and think about it. So I implore you, when you're looking at your lesson plans, both now as students and for the rest of your career, think about what children will and students will be thinking in that part of the lesson. Think about the start of the lesson, the next part, the plenary, wherever you are within the lesson, think about what will children be thinking right now. If it's not to do with the learning objective, if it's not to do with what you want them to be thinking, then change that activity. Something as basic as knowing the Allied forces within the Second World War, if you give them activities that help them to learn the names of the Allied forces, that's probably a good activity. If in the uh, aim of being fun and engaging, it isn't about the names of the Allied forces, it's probably a terrible activity. This leads me on then to another absolutely fantastic book, Daisy Christodoulou's Seven Myths About Education. Published in 2013, this is still making waves uh, and the impact is being felt a little bit here in Wales, maybe more so in England, but also in lots of other countries. Daisy talks about seven things that we're maybe not quite getting right in our education systems. Again, mostly within the Western world in the way that we try to work. One lesson that Daisy talks about in her book is a Shakespeare lesson in a secondary school. And within that English lesson, the teacher who was teaching Romeo and Juliet got the students to make puppets. Ofsted at that time had said that this was an outstanding lesson because it engaged the children in their, in their learning. Daisy Christodoulou deconstructs this lesson and explains that actually this was probably not even a satisfactory lesson because what were they thinking at that time? They were thinking about how to make puppets. They were not thinking about Romeo and Juliet almost in any way. If we take that idea and bring it over to the new curriculum for Wales, and this is something that we've been doing in St Joseph's School for about the last three or four years, 
You can still make puppets when you're studying Romeo and Juliet. If you imagine in Barry School now, Stanwell, the DT department get together with the English department and the drama department and the art department when they're planning their long-term maps of their curriculum and they say that we want Romeo and Juliet to be the driver for our learning here. The DT department can maybe have gone to the Millennium Centre, watched The Lion King, looked at how those puppets work. Then, when the students are studying Romeo and Juliet, in their English lessons, they're focusing on character analysis, soliloquy, uh, maybe uh, the use of prose in Shakespearean texts. Whereas in DT, they can make the puppets. Whilst in the art department, they can think about how they're going to make the backdrop and the design of the set. In their drama lessons, they could be looking at stage fighting. All of these things can come together in an interdisciplinary way. In a primary school, this is even easier because you often have the same adult who's planning these things. And this is exactly what we have done in St. Joseph's School with our new curriculum. We've taken the principles of the Leonardo effect, where it was about engagement and enthusiasm and grabbing children's attention, and we've taken the rigor and the rich content material from the idea of Hirsch, and we've tried to put these two together in what we believe is a very successful way. So we are unashamedly, in St. Joseph's, knowledge rich. We have in our domains, our topics, we have areas such as ancient Greece, we have areas such as the rainforests of the world. We do want our children to learn about where countries are in the world on maps. We do want them to be able to name capital cities. And some people often think of this as being a pub quiz type curriculum. We think it's actually rich knowledge for their life. And we think that this is important things that they will know. But of course, we want them to have engaging experiences when they're studying the rainforest of not just where the rainforest is, but what actually is happening when we have the deforestation effect on the people who live there. What's going on in their lives? What impact is it having on the social um, order of South America? What's going on then when we try and have the art of the rainforest? So we try to have an interdisciplinary approach where we're taking, we hope, the best of the ideas of, of all of these things that we've been learning about. Then I would want to come on to, although I said that Inf Willingham influenced I was thinking in terms of how we plan and what we plan with our lessons. In terms of our delivery and our pedagogy, this is probably the most important book that I've come across in my career. Um, Teach Like a Champion, this is 2.0, in other words, the second edition. Doug Lamov, who wrote and published Teach Like a Champion, has identified 62 techniques that champion teachers um, use within their classrooms. So he observed about 10,000 hours worth of lessons and recorded them went back and watched them over and over and said, this teacher is absolutely fantastic. They have a particular pedagogy and a particular way of teaching. This teacher is fantastic. They have apparently a very different pedagogy and a different way of teaching. But what do they have in common? What do they do that's similar? And he did this across hundreds of teachers. And then they came up with the idea of initially in their first edition around 47, I think, techniques, then on to 62 techniques. And in this, they expound them, they, they talk about them, they explain exactly what champion teachers do. What is it that they're doing that's similar? How are they working with the children? How about the development of a culture within the classroom? How do we make sure that the ratio of learning sits with the students? How do we make sure it's not the teacher doing all of the hard work, but the rigorous thinking that's going on in the classroom is with the pupils? How do we make sure that the questions we ask and we get the children to ask are absolutely rigorous? How do we make sure that we don't just accept a basic answer, but that we push further and further and want more and more from our children? This is, within this text, what you can do. And we've used this now going all the way back to 2015-16, where we've explored these ideas. I've been to training with 
Doug himself um, in London and taken back those ideas. And now every year that they come back to deliver training in the UK, more and more people from South Wales are going along. And these ideas have had a huge impact within our School of St. Joseph's, absolutely huge. If Eston were to come back now, they would not say that teaching is only just about good. I would be confident that they would say that teaching from nursery to year six is excellent. I'd be confident that they would look at the rigor, at the enjoyment, at the um, pedagogy that's taking place, and they would say that the children in St. Joseph's are having a fantastic time. What does that actually mean then with outcomes? Well, we have lots and lots of visitors to St. Joseph's School, pretty much one group per week. We've had tens of schools that have come to visit us over the last year or two as we've engaged with the new curriculum, taken ideas forward as a pioneer school and been innovative. Pretty much every teacher that goes away will say that the students in St. Joseph's are the most uh, eloquent, have the most advanced vocabulary that they have come across because of this rich content. They will say about the behaviour within the school being fantastic. It's always lovely to hear that, but also in terms of outcomes, although outcomes are not everything with an educational experience, I just want to tell you about the difference made in reading tests. Just one test, but in reading tests. In 2014, before we started any of this work, our average score in reading tests in the school was 101, just slightly above the national average. Last year in 2019, the average reading score from year two to year six was 110. In that time, we've moved the average score on nine points. That means that our average child in St. Joseph's was average for Wales. Now, they're in about the top 20 to 25%, our average child, in terms of their reading ability according to the national test. Even more importantly, in 2014, 12% of our students scored under 85 in the tests. Now, that figure is 2%. Just three children last year scored under 85. Just three children would be counted as under average in terms of their reading ability, all the way from year two to year six. In terms of our SEN then, that means that we know exactly what to do, who to work with, to make sure that hopefully even fewer in future. And at the other end of the scale in terms of ability range, we've gone from 16%, the perfect national average at over 115, to 27%. Now 27% of our students would be counted as more able and talented in their work. This is because of the Curriculum for Wales journey that we've undertaken, because of the rigour that we've had in terms of our reading and research, and I would implore you to do exactly what Dr Kevin Smith said, read, read and read more, and then taking those ideas in a rigorous way across our school so that we can do this both for us in St Joseph's and then our role in a pioneer and innovation school in helping other schools as well. Thanks very much. Thank you, Gareth, for those um, compelling insights into your school's journey. Um, and we're going to be moving on now to our next panellist. Uh, we're looking from a secondary perspective now, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to Barry Crompton from Stanwell School in Penarth. Thanks, Emma, and a big thank you to Emma for inviting me um, today. I'm coming at this from a, from a secondary school perspective. Uh, just to give you a brief background of, of my experiences, uh, it's been my job really for the last uh, five years at Stanwell, right from the inception of the idea of successful futures and the fact that uh, Graham Donaldson put all, all his ideas forward for the four purposes and so on. The Welsh Government, in all their wisdom, then decided that the best way forward with successful futures was to have pioneer schools. And Stanwell School has been one of those pioneer schools in terms of professional learning for the past five years. And it's been my job really to, to head that up and to, and to lead it from Stanwell School. 
Um, just to give you an idea, really, of um, what I'm going to do today, I'm just going to go through some of the experiences in different meetings, different trials the school have done, things that within this new curriculum that was published earlier in the week that maybe you're not aware of, in fact, maybe many schools in Wales are not aware of, beyond just the text, beyond just the curriculum that's been published, the little nuances that, that, that maybe are, are important. It should show to you that there are opportunities with the new uh, curriculum, but also that there are many, many challenges. So the first challenge, I think, um, is really to do with and Kirsty Williams said in her, in her uh, podcast when she, um, when she published it on Twitter, we now need to take our time. Schools shouldn't really um, go into this experience now, rushing into changing their curricula in a secondary perspective, totally um, reinventing the way schools work. In fact, um, you may be aware, indeed you may be in, in certain schools where maybe they've got rid of old heads of department, employed new heads of AOLEs, and that has led more recently to industrial action in some schools and so on. So really forging ahead with something without thinking it through can unfortunately create some problems. Just to give you an example, um, you may be aware that when the curriculum is put together, you have these what matters statements, you have progression steps, you have descriptors of learning. Well, if you had an inexperienced or a, 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 an SLT team that haven't really been involved with the new curriculum at all. They're a non-pioneer school. They've really just waited until the new curriculum kind of lands on their desk. Well, they may look at the headlines of the new curriculum and just make the crude decision that, well, there are six what matters statements for the science and tech AOLE. There are only three what matters statements for the expressive arts AOLE. Therefore, that means I just give twice as much time on the curriculum, on the timetable, for science than I do for expressive arts. That's just the way it's written down. And of course, that would go totally against the whole idea behind and the ethos behind the new curriculum. One of the messages that's, that's hopefully going to come across very clearly is that there should be some kind of equality and parity across the AOLEs in schools. Now, that's easier said than done because, again, um, we've been sort of brought up over the last 20 years or so, particularly in secondary, with this idea that some subjects are maybe more important than others in terms of accountability, in terms of measures, the pressure on maths teachers, English teachers, science teachers with level two plus and core subject indicator and all of these different measures. It's meant that our curriculum has become a little bit skewed towards certain subjects. And now with the new curriculum, there should be parity across that. But in order for that to happen, and this is where um, I think some of the little stories I might tell might, might resonate with you, one of the things we have to do as members of staff and as schools is that in order for this new curriculum to be successful, we have to upskill our staff. And a huge part of the upskilling process is to do with professional learning. And we have a professional learning program in Stanwell that we're very proud of. We have 120 members of staff, which again, if, if you have primary experience at the moment, you've just gone through your first placement, 120 members of staff, it's, it's a lot of people to, to make sure they're upskilled. And within that process, it's clear now that inquiry is a really, really important part of the new curriculum. And this is a huge opportunity for you. You've just finished your first placements. You're going into your second placements. 
I'm going to scare you now. In September, you will be starting your new jobs, okay? And when that happens, you're going to be in a really unique situation in terms of inquiry and in terms of professional learning. You will be the experts in your schools. Right? That's what you, you're going through at the moment, this research-informed practice. And whilst at this moment in time you might be sick to death of assignments and juggling that with teaching and so on, honestly, when you go into schools, you need to get into the professional learning programs, you need to offer your services to schools and say, look, you're used to doing this, you know the best ways to you know, choose the right question, look at methodologies, uh, reading around subjects and all of those things because older teachers like myself we did those kinds of things 20 years ago in between that time from being doing my PGCE yes there have been other opportunities but it isn't really embedded in my practice whereas for you the opportunity is it is embedded in your practice and you need to carry that on now another really not controversial but Another challenge regarding the new curriculum is to do with subject specialism. And of course, again, I'm speaking to you where maybe the reason why you've done a PGC is because you love history, you love geography, you love biology, whatever it might be. And the fear with the new curriculum is that that specialism will no longer be that important. As a historian myself, there's a very genuine fear that the humanities AOLE will somewhat dilute my subject knowledge. I suddenly have to know a little bit about geography and RE and bring lots and lots of things together. And that really bothered me in the, in the beginning. In fact, um, we had uh, a meeting, it wasn't just a meeting, it was a lovely day actually, with representatives from the Dutch government. We felt quite important in Stanwell that they, they chose to have a little tour around our school and have really frank discussions. And the Dutch government want to try curriculum reform just as we're trying in Wales. It didn't last very long. A few months, and you probably don't know this, but there are very, very powerful guilds of teachers <coughs> in Holland. So there's a guild of history teachers, a guild of geography teachers. And when they put their initial proposals forward, having a similar, cur similar curriculum now to us, where you had the idea of humanities and, and grouping subjects together, that was as far as it got. Those guilds completely shot down the ideas and the Dutch government just had to scrap the idea and they had to go back to basics and they had to try again. <coughs> now it's interesting that teachers in Wales, mixed bag, maybe it's not a mixed bag, there's a lot of criticism out there about this new uh, Welsh curriculum. I think it depends on which school you're in. You could well be in a school now or you've just finished your first placement in a school where they're really critical of the, the new curriculum, that it's not going to work. There's still some people out there who genuinely think this will not come to fruition. Kirsty Williams will lose her job and we'll just go back to the way it was. There are genuinely people out there who think that. So with these criticisms, and when you look on places like Twitter and across social media platforms, it really is a difficult job for pioneer schools who are now given the remit of going out and making sure people are positive about the new curriculum and to tell you about the stories and, and the kind of pitfalls and promise that, that they could be, it's really difficult for us to do that because of the way the media can work. Um, it's one of those things where I think that's an opportunity for you as well. When you go into interviews, when you go now to look for new posts, 
in that process, make sure you you match yourself up with a school that really is positive about the new curriculum if you can. Don't be one of those people who perhaps are naysayers, the ones who say that it can't work. Because if the majority of people say, in the teacher profession, it's not going to work, then it won't work. Right? We have to give it a go and give it a try. And as Gareth mentioned earlier on, in terms of outcomes and in terms of assessment, I just said the word, I'm really sorry. But that word in secondary school, it's the reason why many secondary schools are perhaps not forging ahead with the new curriculum. They're scared that if they make big changes, that when kids do GCSE and when they go on to A-level, if you experiment too much at, at key stage three, uh, at the early years in school, it's going to ultimately result in standards dropping and, and the unfortunate thing then will be that Estim will be on your back and so on. But that's the kind of old school of thinking. That's the way that schools, you know, hopefully used to think. And now we're going to start looking into this kind of new horizon and this uh, new way of thinking. Just to give you an example, really, of how the new curriculum might work. My boy is in year seven. He definitely wasn't going to come to Stanwell School. I can't think of anything worse for him, bless him, for me to teach him. So um, he goes to another school in the Vale of Glamorgan. And they have actually taken the decision, they are a pioneer school as well, to trial in year seven a humanities approach. Now, obviously, being a historian, and in Stanwell, we definitely haven't made that decision yet. We are sticking with our traditional uh, subjects and no big decisions are going to be made. But it was, it was really difficult for me in the past couple of months to see how it goes. And as a dad, of course, you'd always think, well, if it doesn't work for him and he's not a really good historian and he's not really good at the things I'd love him to be good at, you know, how will I feel about that? The only thing I will say is it's been really, really positive. I've had discussions with, with my son that I'm convinced other Year 7 students in my school in particular may not have had. I won't bore you with it, but when I ask my 11-year-old son about the Black Death and try and trick him by saying, yeah, but what were the positives of the Black Death? And for him to have a discussion about it and to tell me about the economic situation and how labour markets changed and so on, I'm looking at him thinking, you are joking. How do you know these? And that's because he's been able to put little pieces together from lots of different disciplines and not just look at it from one discipline. So that's just perhaps a crude example of where perhaps the new curriculum um, might be able to work. I mentioned assessment earlier on. I just want you to be aware that currently there is a consultation document out there from the Welsh Government that you can feed into regarding the way GCSEs might look in the future. So secondary colleagues here, it may be something you, you'd like to feed into. Um, I have no information about assessment. Um, if I did have information about assessment, this podcast would probably have over a million hits mm -hmm. because everybody seems to be waiting for what's going to happen with, you know, GCSEs and accountability measures uh, in particular. But the only thing I wanted you to be aware of was that assessment consultation, because if you could um, contribute to that, that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, finally, the only thing I really want to say is that in terms of the new curriculum, it is an absolutely huge mindset shift and a massive undertaking for teachers and senior leaders in school. For the kids, they probably won't even notice. They will just carry on learning. They will just carry on either listening or not listening in classrooms, whatever the case may be. 
the big change really is for the profession okay and if we get it right i promise <coughs> you the pupils will come along with us but just to keep in mind what i mentioned earlier on with um the media and negative effects and so on i'll just leave you with a quote from kobe bryant who as we all know tragically died in a helicopter crash recently and kobe bryant once said everything negative pressure challenges that's all an opportunity for me to rise so think about that i know you've just finished your first placement so very well done for that and completing that good luck in your second placements as well thank you very much Thank you very much, Barry. Some really positive messages there about how we how we move forward uh, in our respective settings. So we're now going to look to uh, the perspective of educational consortia, and I'm pleased to announce that we've got Nikki Hagendyke from EAS Education Achievement Service Consortium, who is going to speak to us next. Thank you very much, Nikki. Thank you. Thanks, Emma, very much for inviting me, um, and thank you, everybody. Um, Gareth said it was 20 years since he sat where you sat. Um, unfortunately, it's been slightly more than that for me, um, but uh, I'll give you a little bit about my background, really. So I started off as a history teacher many, slightly over 20 years ago. Um, I've taught at various different schools in Cardiff. I've taught international back, Welsh back, history, um, other humanities subjects. Um, and I've now, for the last three years, been working at one of the four regional consortia um, in Wales um, as an advisor. The reason I'm here today really is because for the last couple of years I've been the regional chair um, of the Humanities AOLE group. So each of the groups of teachers who've been co-constructing and writing the curriculum um, have had two people chairing their groups, one from Welsh Government and one from the regional consortia and it's been my absolute privilege to have been able to uh, be the regional chair for the Humanities group. So our group has been made up of me, a Welsh Government chair, um, teachers from across Wales, from all different schools, from primary, from secondary, from special schools. We've had representatives of Estyn, Qualifications Wales sitting in um, on the groups. And we've had um, continuous um, engagement really with a, a range of different experts from all of the different uh, disciplinary areas within um, the AOLE. Um, it has been a real privilege to be a part of that, to work with the teachers across Wales in actually developing the, the, the curriculum. I think perhaps the biggest um, benefit to the teachers and to myself um, from involvement is the ability to sort of engage really with the theory that underpins curriculum because you don't really think uh, about it when you're day-to-day -day teaching. Um, it's been an, a fantastic opportunity for the teachers to really engage with the uh, literature, with the research and to really start to con conceptualise what curriculum is and what it should be. They've been able to engage in all of the research that, that the other presenters have talked to about. They've been able to look at international curricular comparisons as well and really try to bring it all together in a way that they felt was right for uh, us here in Wales. Okay. Um, my day job, when I'm not uh, doing the workshops with the Humanities AOLE, is uh, working at the Education Achievement Service, so it's one of the four regional consortia. Uh, EAS, we deal with the five local authority areas in Gwent, so it's Newport, uh, Caerphilly, Torvine, Monmouthshire and Blyna Gwent. The, the consortia for, for the Cardiff area is Central South Consortia. Um, what they do really is they provide advisory support for schools so the consortia will provide professional learning programs for teachers um, they will support you as NQTs 
um, and in your early years the consortia provide um, a range of in-school support for teachers and for departments so my day job is very much working in schools with teachers looking at their practice trying to strengthen pedagogy strengthen leadership within school Moving forward though, the consortia has got quite a, a big job on their hands in the next few years because the four consortia really are taking the lead on the professional learning that is accompanying the curriculum, now it's been released. So the four consortia have together written a professional learning programme for senior leaders, for teachers, for middle leaders that is starting now in February. The professional learning programme has been written collaboratively between all four regions, so wherever you end up teaching in Wales, you have an entitlement to that same professional learning programme as every other teacher in all of the other regions of Wales. So this programme is starting now in February with senior leaders um, programme focusing on leading change, developing a shared vision for the curriculum, planning for, for the curriculum, making time for professional learning to support your teachers, approaches to curriculum design. In probably about September, uh, the programme will then move forward to uh, middle leaders and teachers. And so when you start your first post, you'll be able to engage with the professional learning programme to support curriculum. And that programme will include uh, planning, how to plan in the medium, long term for curriculum, how to include cross-curricular skills, disciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, integrated approaches to curriculum design, progression, how to connect and make links between areas of learning, something that Barry touched upon there. Okay. So that's me, that's my job, that's what we're looking forward to. Um, we were asked to talk about the challenges and opportunities that the uh, curriculum provides and in my work in the consortia I, I can see a lot of challenges but I wanted to first ponder on the opportunities really. Um, I think there is a real feeling across the profession and certainly I feel this that this is a massive opportunity for teachers to take back professional ownership of the curriculum and to take professional responsibility for what they teach and how they teach it. It is a really exciting opportunity and I would really encourage you to see it as an exciting opportunity. There are very few countries where teachers have been able to be as involved in writing the curriculum, the National Curriculum Framework, but then as professionals to be involved in developing their own school-based curriculum. We are incredibly lucky that the curriculum has evolved in the way it has because it will give you, as professionals, the opportunity to develop your expertise in curriculum design. I think it's a real opportunity to really consider why we teach what we teach and how we teach it. Okay? We haven't really had to think about why we teach the things we teach in the current world, in the current national curriculum. But those questions of why we do what we do, are we doing the right things, are we doing it in the right way? that will and can only improve um, the whole education system. I think it is a real opportunity to make the curriculum better, to make what we are providing for young people more relevant, uh, better experiences for young people, more authentic learning that will benefit them in their future. But obviously, such a massive change like this isn't without challenges as well. Okay? I think um, it's been alluded to by previous speakers that the biggest challenge is that we're not experienced in curriculum design and certainly when the pioneers started it and when we started um, designing the national curriculum framework they weren't experts in curriculum design either and I would really echo what's been said about engaging with the literature about what curriculum is and engaging with the theory that underpins different curriculum design uh, principles. Okay? Uh, I think another challenge uh, is misconceptions 
and Barry alluded to a few of those, especially around humanities. Um, there's quite a few misconceptions out there, and there has been since Successful Futures was written. Um, there's misconceptions about where the subjects fit into AOLEs, there's misconceptions about what or what matters is, misconceptions about what an AOLE is, uh, misconceptions about what descriptions of learning are and progression steps. I would really encourage you to take your time to get your head around it. Uh, Central South Consortium have done a really good myth-busting document that's been publicised on their Twitter feed um, and myself and a couple of colleagues from EAS have written a couple of blog posts a few months ago for Welsh Government's um, uh, your website I think it is isn't it for their website there's a couple of blog posts there about myth-busting the, the curriculum and I would really really encourage you to make sure that when you engage with the curriculum you really think about what it is really saying Okay. It's quite easy to be swayed by headlines or to see things on Twitter or to see things in the Western Mail and to accept that that's what it means. That isn't necessarily what it means. Okay, so really engage with it at a deep level. But that will take time, and I think that's a big challenge um, for the system, is time to engage in the right way. When a new curriculum's launched, it, it, some schools, want, you want to jump straight in, don't you? You, want, you want to jump in. We're encouraging all the schools in our region to just stop for a minute really really consider your vision your um, situation of your school and really look at what is the right approach to take for you you need to get your vision and your ethos right before you start considering the more practicalities about how you're going to structure things and how you're going to deliver things so time is a big issue time to work together as clusters one of the things that i would really stress to you whether your primary or secondary phase is that this new curriculum is a 3 to 16 continuum of learning increasingly there will be much more uh, need to work with clusters of schools in our region, we are trying to put clusters together um, to work together to develop their curriculum as, as an entirety, okay, so holistically, so they're working together. It's quite a challenge, though, to find the time to do that. Time is really important, though, because this isn't just a bit of a change to a curriculum. This is a new type of curriculum. So we've moved from a kind of content and outcomes curriculum to a process purposes driven curriculum. It's not just the same as a sort of new, a new spec for the GCSE. It's a fundamental shift in the type of curriculum that we've got. It's a curriculum based on subsidiarity that you as teachers will have the ability to write and develop your school based curriculum. That's a big change for us. So don't rush is my advice. Okay. Really think, really consider, really ponder, really give yourself time to get your head around it and engage with it in the right way. There's one challenge that I will refer to in a couple of minutes that, uh, that Barry's hinted at, um, qualifications. Those of you from a secondary background, okay, you may have heard uh, people saying, oh, well, until we know what the qualifications are, we're not quite sure. It is a big challenge. Um, it is a challenge at secondary. Secondary schools, um, the qualifications at the moment completely dominate. Okay? and feed back into often what's done at key stage three, which can sometimes be a preparation for those GCSEs. What I would encourage you to see is that this curriculum is a three to 16 <coughs> curriculum. The qualifications that will be developed will be developed from the curriculum that is now 
in place. Okay? Qualifications are an important part of the curriculum and the consultation about qualifications is currently out by, from Qualifications Wales. I think it closes in about a week's time and I would really encourage you to um, <coughs> feed back to that consultation. But please try to see that there's much, much more to curriculum than qualifications. They're an important aspect of it, but try to see that actually we need to engage with the curriculum as it is. The curriculum's an opportunity th to think much more broadly about our secondary phase and to look at how qualifications fit with and the curriculum offering that we have. Uh, we were also asked to have a talk about uh, our advice to you, so, so my, there's a couple of bits of advice I've given you, but I want to really reiterate what other people have said about read, 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 okay? Most definitely read, read, read. Um, read as much as you can. Um, we are obviously encouraging everybody to be familiar with the curriculum, with professional standards, with the national mission, with the schools as learning organisations work as well. But beyond that, you should be reading an awful lot. Try and engage, not just with research about pedagogy, but also research about curriculum design as well. Be careful not to be selective. Okay, it's quite easy when you start reading things to read into a bit of a funnel and you read lots of things that all agree with the previous thing you've read. Try and challenge yourself. Read things that you don't expect you're going to agree with. Critically analyse what you've read in those and try and challenge your own perspectives and challenge your own thoughts. My other advice to you, apart from reading, is to ask the question why. Whenever you're in schools, just ask why, because actually we don't ask that very much in schools. When you're seeing uh, a lesson being taught by one of your teachers, why are you teaching that? Why are you using that approach? Try to get under the skin of why people are doing what they're doing, okay? And then feed that into your thoughts. How do you want to teach? How do you want to design and work in your school to design your curriculum, okay? So thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nikki. Uh, some, again, some really uplifting, aspirational and, and reassuring messages there coming through from EAS. So I'm going to introduce you to our final panellist, uh, Sunny Singh, who is a representative of Welsh Government today, who is going to give us our final uh, piece on how we navigate curriculum design. Morning all. Um, as I said, I'm Sunny Singh, I'm here from Welsh Government, but previously before joining Welsh Government I was a physics teacher in Basic School, which is some of you are probably going to, and I believe there's a few ex-students here as well from Basic School who I actually probably taught. I hope you do a much better job now. But um, the questions I want to start with, and I'm, give you, I'm not going to bore you, I'll try not to bore you from the government perspective, but actually give you an insight into how government has worked and the reasons why government has gone through this huge overall change. Um, successful futures. Why do, why do we start? Why are we having this reform? I mean, if you think about it, and this is something we discuss quite often, the last curriculum, 1988, okay? Back, I'm sure my age now, Back to the Future 2 came out roughly around that time. So even though we've had changes in 2004, 2010, We've had the same conceptual model since 1988, since Back to the Future 2. And in Back to the Future 2, they fast forward to 2015, I think it is, and they're flying cars. And we all just think and joke and laugh about it, but we have the same cu curriculum. When they say in 2015 we have flying cars, but we're actually teaching the same curriculum. And it's mind-boggling when you think about it, that actually, conceptually, the model hasn't changed. We've added, bit, we've added bits to it. The LNF added bits with... Um, the skills, that frameworks, etc., etc., but we really haven't changed it. So in 2015, when Successful Futures was done, the question was, why are we doing this? Why are we having this, this change? Yes, it was outdated, but does that mean it needs to be changed? Some people say yes, some people say no. 
we had questions about our performance with Pisa, Welsh, Wales' performance with Pisa. I mean, it was middle of the road. I mean, we weren't as good as Scotland, we weren't good as Ireland, we had discussions then as well. And there were certain voices where, well, does that really matter? We'll never be as good as Scotland, we'll never be as good as England. Well, that's not the questions we need to be asking. The question is asking is, what are we doing for our learners? What are we doing as a society in Wales? That's the fundamental question. In schools, we are providing the society of tomorrow, and as simple as that. That's what we have to look at, and that's what we have to think, and what we are trying to do within schools. So the question then comes into, why successful futures? Why was this that? And all the review Professor Donson did in that time, and we asked him quite often, well, what did you learn from this? And he realized that the profession, there's two things. We were teaching things that were outdated, and the profession, the teaching profession, is on his knees. It was on his knees completely. And I was really, really stark when you hear that, that every school he went to, in his uh, review, teachers were saying, they can't carry on anymore doing this. People were leaving. It was too difficult. The accountability measures were too high. It was too punitive. They were just teaching stuff to get through the days, get through the qualifications, to get through the assessment values that were, that were needed. There were discussions happening about level 5A, level 5C, whatever, percentage of level 2 pluses. Those were the discussions. So he said to the minister at the time, I can either fix your issues or we have a complete overhaul change. And the minister at the time, Hugh Lewis, said, let's go for overall change. So we have the Scotland problem time and time again, and it's widely publicized. Well, we've got the same architect. Our curriculum is the same architect as Scotland. And we all know the problems of Scotland. Scotland had this curriculum. And if you read their curriculum for excellence and read what we've got, it's not far off the same. Conceptually, the model isn't that different. If you look at other international curriculums like New Zealand, Canada, parts of Canada, Australia, their curriculum model is quite similar to ours. But the Scottish one, particularly because it's so close to us, and why did that have problems? And we get this time, time and time again, well, you're going to re repeat the Scottish issues. Well, with that, with the new minister, when Kirsty Williams took post, she decided, and don't forget, she inherited successful futures. She decided at that time that we need to overhaul change, not just the curriculum, but actually of the whole education system, hence the, the national mission. That is complete change of accountability, professional learning, um, <laughs> qualifications, everything. And the main purpose of that is to drive towards the four purposes. And that's the whole point of the national mission. We are now moving from an outcome curriculum, from an outcome-focused education system to a purpose education system across the board. And why the four purposes? Simple. The four purposes are simple. You cannot argue against them. And I, I, I really try, ask you to try this. Have a discussion with anyone you know, your parents, your friends who aren't in education, anywhere you go, what do you think of the four purposes? And you start reading them off. And I bet you they won't argue against it. They'll say, yeah, so what? But no one will ever say that's bad. That's bad to have in individuals. Those four purposes, if they are within every single individual, they are bad. And the other brilliant thing of the four purposes is that you don't actually have ever achieve them. You can't say at the age of 16, I'm an ethically informed individual. You can't say, oh, in year three or year four, they're, moving, they're progressing towards being a healthy, confident individual. Those four, four purposes you carry on for the rest of your lives. We are just helping learners realize them across a learning journey. They can actually carry on for the rest of their lives. And they cannot be measured. You cannot be broken down, they cannot be measured. There's something we drive towards. And that's what the whole education system is driving towards. And when I said earlier that education, in fact, is something that impacts society more than anything else and society of tomorrow, well, that's it. Those, and that's the reason for the four purposes. So in designing the curriculum, we had huge challenges. Okay? So, and as we mentioned earlier as well, the challenges of people coming in saying that actually curriculum is the number of hours I give music or what I'm meant to teach or 
I'm a history teacher, let me keep, keep on with my history. I did it earlier, I just did it earlier. I said, I'm a physics teacher. When really, I should be saying, I'm a teacher who happens to teach physics. And these are the discussions that happen time and time again. And we got hampered, really got hamstrung by the two things that people already mentioned at the moment, qualifications and accountability. And so much so, in some of the groups, when we were having these discussions, we were at, one of the groups in particular had red card. If anyone mentioned qualification or accountability, they'd be given a red card. And they weren't allowed to talk about it again. And every time it was brought up, because that was really hamstring in the situation. And it's simple, why? Because we live in such a, a punitive system where accountabilities, accountability and qualifications are so, so important. And I'm not saying qualifications aren't important, but why are they important? Why is qualification important? And a philosophical answer is, qualifications are important for that learner. Something's happened, something's happened in our system that qualifications have become the measure for secondary schools. And they are no longer as important for that learner, they've become the measure for secondary schools. Something's happened in that time. So, having 150 practitioners across the section, we had regional consortia, ESTEN, Qualification Wales, all designing the curriculum. I mean, that's huge. That level of curriculum change or curriculum design hasn't happened anywhere else in the world. Yes, New Zealand had 250 teachers doing it, but it was really, really small in part. And being in Welsh Government, I get reminded time and time again that in the past, this would not have happened. Welsh Government is very young. It's very young. But this kind of change is very unique for Welsh Government and government in total. And I'm told time and time again, in the, in the old days, I wouldn't be in. A teacher would not be in Welsh Government. In the old days, you would get a central diktat from London. It would come over and it would go straight up to teachers. It wouldn't be translated or anything like that. It'd be Welshified and gone straight to teachers. With devolution, we are an infant democracy, and this is by far the biggest fundamental change across, and it, until a certain thing that happened in 2016, this was Brexit, this was the biggest thing in Welsh Government. And it still is, education reform is the biggest thing in Welsh Government, and we are going through huge legislative proposals as well. So if you are aware, we are changing the whole law around education in Wales. So, let's go back to the process about curriculum, and as I mentioned earlier, the understanding of curriculum. People had huge amounts of uh, a different understanding of curriculum. So what are, we saying, are we, what are we saying about curriculum in this world? Well, what Welsh Government are providing with you is a national level framework. Schools have to design their own curriculum. And what we are putting front and centre is our part, the national mission part, is that the curriculum in Wales is every single thing a learner experiences in pursuit of the four purposes. It is not about just the what and how, but really impo importantly about the why we are teaching these things. And it's everything. So, and this is a monumental shift change for secondary schools, that everything a learner experiences in pursuit of the four purposes. That's what curriculum is. The other difficulty we have is assessment. Now, again, we mentioned qualifications, we've mentioned accountability, but really what is assessment? What's it for? And what we've stripped out and has gone back into the uh, curriculum documentation now is that actually the purpose of assessment is to, is to assess learner progression. That's what it is. That's why we assess. Not to fill in spreadsheets, not to fill in data sheets to get, send off to Welsh Government, not to colour code spreadsheets, whether red, green or amber. Assessment is for learner progression and, and to help learners progress through that continuum. That's what it's there for. So, along with a whole system level change, we are, look, we are decoupling, and it's been said publicly by the Minister, we are removing teacher assessment from accountability. We are decoupling assessment from the accountability measures, and that is happening. 
in the ministerial statements of, of late. So really pulling assessment away from the accountability <laughs> section. Account and we go back to the philosophical question, well, what is accountability? Accountability is you hold to account things that are important and what is important in the system. And that's a piece of work that's happening at the moment with the Welsh Government. This debate's happening all the time, knowledge versus skills. This is a skills curriculum, this is a knowledge curriculum. Well, that's a false dichotomy. You can't have one without the other. But what we are clear in this documentation is the role of knowledge. The role of knowledge in this curriculum is to, is to acquire more knowledge in greater sophistication and greater depth. That's the purpose of this curriculum. It, the what matters and, and the AOEs are built upon that. There's also debates about disciplinary and interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. Well, they can't exist without each other. You can't have interdisciplinary without disciplines. There are disciplines within this curriculum. It is signposted within the documentation. The whole point is that we build this curriculum on progression, purposes, and concepts. The what matters are our concepts. You come back to them time and time again, acquiring more knowledge, further detailed skills, and more sophistication. And that's as the learner progresses. We've also produced, since um, the draft launch, we've produced some uh, designing your curriculum section. Now, this is something we're putting front and center. We made quite explicit in April, but what we are making really, really explicit now is how you start designing your curriculum. It is not a complete manual. It is not a thing. If you do A, then you do B, then you do C, you've designed a curriculum. It's more an academic toolkit to, for you to understand, for, you, for teachers and head teachers to look back and think, actually, what philosophical questions am I asking myself? Have I adhered to these principles? So what we are saying is when you design a, when you design a curriculum, you start at the top. You start with vision. Well, what is the head teacher's vision for this curriculum? What is the head teacher's philosophy for curriculum and for their learners? What do you want from your learners? You do not teach to the curriculum we're giving you directly. I mean, the, the achievement outcomes that we had, description of learning, you don't teach them directly. They're just aids to help you design your curriculum. The question is, what do you want your learners to be? And what is the vision for your school? And that starts at the top with your head teachers. And it's gonna be really difficult for you when you go into your placements, because that may not be there in some of the schools. But then the other thing is, what do you want from your learners? We then go on to parents. Well, how do you engage with parents? Actually co-construct with parents. Not just design a curriculum and tell parents. How well do your parents understand what you are doing in your school? From a secondary perspective, the amount of times parents come in and say, well, you're not teaching so-and-so, oh, so-and-so is not doing very well. My son can't, what's the point of this? They can't understand what we do in a school. So really starting that, how do you build that discussions and that dialogue with parents? And that's a huge challenge. Communities, businesses, they've all got to be part of this. As I said to you before, and I keep saying again and again, schools will determine the society of tomorrow. It's as simple as that. How well are communities, how well are businesses, and how well do they understand curriculum? Do they understand the four purposes? And do they understand what you are doing in schools? Other principles, inclusivity. And these are all pan-government uh, objectives. Inclusivity, how inclusive are we? We are saying this is a curriculum for all learners. So schools have to design a curriculum for all learners. Challenge. It's no good enough saying, oh, so-and-so won't be able to get it. They'll never get it. So-and-so, they live in this area. They're not going to be that good. It's challenge for all. And this is more challenging for certain schools and certain areas and certain demographics, but it is challenge for all. Equity. This curriculum has to be equity and equitable. I know those two things are different, but they have to be for every single learner. There cannot be a postcode lottery where if someone goes to a rural school somewhere else, someone goes to an inner city school. The question we get time and time again, there's going to be, there's going to be discrepancies. So what is the national tolerance from school to school? Well, we have given you a national 
framework. And within that national framework, there are legislative duties. So there's a duty on head teachers to provide a broad and balanced curriculum, provide all the what matters, which give you your broad and balanced curriculum. There's a duty on head teachers and governing bodies to ensure learners progress across a uh, learning continuum. That are the, that's the national level duties on all head teachers. So we all know the next thing is going to be big, getting this into school. Because the four purposes, yes, so what? We have to make them real. And so the argument is, with government, we are producing out an action plan of what we do next, how we work with regions, Estin, universities, to try and make this a reality for the next two years, and actually for secondary schools for the next five years. And curriculum isn't a once-and-done job. Schools should be always iterating their curriculum because the learners that are coming in are different. And if you have that, you then bring the professionalism and the agency back to schools so they can decide what is their curriculum for their learners, but it has to meet with the government challenges. Again, I, I've got to echo what everyone says about reading, and I can't tell you any more about the reading documentation that's already been said, but please, what I would say is go back and read Successful Futures. Read the government document, documentation that are online. They will specify exactly what we are trying to do as a government and what we are trying to do as a nation and how this fits in with wider government policies, the Future Generations Act, the million speakers. All of this plays into one quite large part that education reform is part of. The, my question, well, going back to what Nikki said, what, what are your main takeaways as students going back into other schools? The question is, you will be going into schools where you sometimes you go into schools when you see all of this, you'll see the vision, you'll see the philosophy, and sometimes you won't. And I appreciate having lessons for 50 minutes, you've got learners coming in and out, and when the bell goes, it's an intense environment. But always question your philosophy as a teacher. Why are you, teach why are you a teacher, and why are you teaching? And what do you want from your learners? And I think those are the fundamentals that we need to come back to. Everything else will become peripheral around that. Thank you. Thank you, Sonny. So we've had five really interesting, challenging, thought-provoking presentations there. I think one of the um, themes that's run through all five of them is the fact that you, the audience, student teachers, are at the forefront of all of this change, in a way, and that schools are going to be looking at you in a very different way to how they might have looked at new entrants to the profession in past years, which is kind of scary, I suppose. So as a public service to you, we have got representatives from the government, from consortia, school senior leadership and academia who are now itching for you to be thought-provoking right back at them with some questions. Now Emma's got one to kind of kick us off to give you a little bit of thinking time because it's always good to give people thinking time. Uh, our glamorous assistant Lisa Fenn has got a microphone on the longest wire I could find in my office. <laughs> so anybody, even the people in the naughty corner at the back, potentially can ask a question. Uh, as long as you wait for the wonderful Lisa to kind of get to you with the microphone. But while we're, while we're waiting for your brains to kind of turn over, Emma has a question for the panel to kick us off. Yes, thank you, Tom. So I'm going to start by coming at this from a, a, a subject perspective. Um, I am primarily a, a, a teacher, but I'm, I'm a drama teacher, a drama specialist. And actually, historically, we've never had a national curriculum. So we have uh, faced the big question of curriculum design day to day um, and we have benefited from not having prescription um, but also we have floundered as a result of not having prescription and I'm just you touched on this Sunny in the end of your speech in relation 
into equity. I'm just wondering for our student teachers who are about to go into different settings, and Nikki, you, you mentioned asking why. Um, I just wonder how we, uh, what advice we would give them to give them the confidence to go into settings where perhaps there might be differences in approach, there might be differences in terms of how quickly, how slowly they're responding uh, to the curriculum reforms. It, it seems to me that there is a big weight on the shoulders of our of our of our newly qualified teachers and our, our starting teachers in the profession. So, what advice would you give them to give them the confidence to go in um, and and tackle these these challenging circumstances that isn't to anyone in particular yeah. <laughs> no. I mean I, I would I would say to to be aware of the the very sort of range of situations in the schools that you'll be going into there are some pioneer schools who've been curriculum pioneers and who've been heavily engaged in, in one part of the curriculum design process and may have experts in that particular area there are other schools who've been professional learning pioneers who would have worked in that area there are other schools who've uh, not been pioneer schools but who've made a start uh, on developing their vision for the curriculum there are other schools who are at, the, at this stage not so I would say my advice to you first would be to, to get a really understanding of the school that you're going into and really get a feel for where they're at what stage on their journey they're at because every school is at a different stage of their journey so really understand the school that you're going into and working with build up relationships with the teachers so that you're in a position to be able to be a part of the team that is on that journey in that school um, and that you're going in as a, as, a, as a member and a valued member of the team in the departments and the year groups that you're working in and you're with them as they're on the journey moving forward my advice the only bit i'd add to that is uh, when you go into your your jobs in in september uh don't be just kind of consumers mm. don't just go into a school and think that the professional learning will be done to you and and that everything will just uh you know fall into place it won't you have to be proactive when you go into schools as i said in my in my talk professional learning inquiry that can be your little niche that can be where you are the experts and that senior leaders and teachers in school will look to you for your expertise so i think that in the first instance might be an area where um you know primary or secondary you really have an important role to play so I would add, um, don't be shy. Don't go into schools and tell them where they're going wrong, but don't be shy also. Don't, don't be afraid to, to put forward your ideas. Don't be afraid to do a great job in your classrooms and, and make people want to come and see you. So certainly St. Joseph's is a relatively small school, just a one-form entry, but some of the best practice I've seen has been from teachers in the first couple of years of their career, and, and I'll happily send in more experienced teachers to go and see what's going on. So the, something that hasn't been mentioned at all so far this morning is teacher agency. Uh, a big part of this curriculum is is around teacher agency and around you doing what you think is right for your students in your classes. You just keep doing that and people will want to come and see what you're doing and hopefully we'll learn from you too. I think um, when I, the very first thing and very first day I showed up at the first school I taught at in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, I was talking to a fellow teacher and, and I was being rather idealistic because I, my purpose, my motivation in teaching was, was in embedded within some pretty lofty ideals um the, like the four purposes are and the person turned to me and said you think you're going to change these kids lives and i said well I, I hope so and he goes they're just hillbillies with afros and i stopped for a moment and my illusions of what i thought school and my colleagues and everything was 
shattered and changed because I, I went up against someone whom was like diametrically opposed to everything I was hoping to achieve as a teacher in school. So luckily, though, I had the luxury of being able to read um, lots of, of books about the philosophies of education, lots about the purpose and values in education. I had been able to set what I what my course was, my trajectory was, and what I hoped to achieve. So I was firm in my understanding of what I felt my purpose was, but also flexible so that I wasn't being rigid in my thinking. But I could fall back on what I had read before and what I believed. And I found allies and colleagues and comrades throughout the school who helped me kind of survive those rougher spots and to kind of see kind of a, a more comprehensive approach that we as a, as a school are trying to achieve. So I recommend um, that not only do you know your purpose, but that you understand it and that you study and that you create your thesis about your teaching that you can defend, that you can allow to be uh, complemented by others' thoughts and added to, but also that you can respond appropriately to things that you find challenging or that may be damaging in the school and to your pupils. It's time for someone to break cover out in the room. Um, I'd like to address the whole panel. Callum Williams, I'm a secondary English teacher. Um, due to the uncertainty of qualifications moving forward, um, and with the Welsh um, GCSEs, let's say, when compared to Scottish, Irish or English qualifications, will there be perhaps an initial disadvantage of value when applying to top universities like Oxford or Cambridge? Um, and Nikki, this is more pertinent to you because I live within the Gwent area and I'm speaking more specifically about pupils from Tredegar or Blaine and Gwent as a whole. Are they more disadvantaged when applying to Oxford and Cambridge compared to other more affluent areas? I know the process of university application depends on A-levels, but GCSEs do get taken into account as well. Uh, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> I would I would say firstly that we have got an independent regulator of qualifications in Wales, Qualifications Wales. It is their job to lead the consultations on what the future of qualifications will look like. Um, the first one of those is out now. The next one is going to be out, I believe, in the in the autumn, which will be more of the specifics about the types of subjects and and uh, number of options, etc. That, that the qualifications will have. Um, there they are committed to ensuring that our qualifications are accepted and are treated um, equally that is one of their fundamental principles and that really is their their role as the regulator to ensure that uh, the, whatever qualifications are adopted here are uh, meet the needs of learners but are also universally re recognized I would say there are already when you when you look at um, university um, ad applications you look at ad admissions offers universities accept qualifications from all around the world they accept Scottish hires they accept the international back they accept French German Hong Kong diplomas they accept qualifications at the moment from all around the world um, so it, universities are not uh, are not just accepting of a levels so um, I would say they, they're used to a wide range of qualifications what it means for Wales though at the moment we don't know we don't you know until the consultations happen until qualifications Wales make the decisions about what qualifications are going to look like here we don't know whether they're going to be very similar to, to as they are now whether they're going to be different in any way that at the moment's not being decided but it is fundamentally qualifications Wales purpose to ensure that they are um, equally recognised. 
And, and they have been working with us quite extensively in the development and designing the curriculum as well and through each of the AOLEs. And as Nikki said earlier, the principles are that this, what we are very, very clear about whatever the qualification will look like, it'll be transferable internationally and internationally recognised. As it is, we know we are keeping the GCSE brand, but our GCSEs are different from England. For example, they're numbered, ours are graded. So it seems like there is a divergence happening there. But it comes back to your other question about the Welsh GCSEs in, in general. They will be they will be internationally rec uh, recognised, and that is a paramount importance of qualification Wales when they offer their suite of quals for any of the regulatory bodies. Then awarding bodies to work thereafter. But it's a good question. I know that earlier I mentioned about uh, the uh, consultation document and so on. So whilst maybe the consortium and Welsh Government might play things with a straight bat and, and, and give an answer that might be a little bit generic. I'll just tell you straight from my point of view, I think it's quite straightforward really. I think all GCSEs should be branded in the same way. And what I mean by that is at the moment, employers, maybe then uh, higher ed colleges and universities, you can have from Wales, let's say, a plethora of different um, qualifications, HNDs, whatever, you, know, you could list them all. I think it might be wise that at a GCSE level, all qualifications are given the GCSE brand. So what I mean by that is kids who go to colleges, um, they have a hair and beauty GCSE. They have a car mechanics GCSE. So that when they come out of school at the age of 16 and they say, I've got 10 GCSEs, that's exactly what they have. They haven't got four GCSEs and one something else and two of something else at a higher level or a lower level, which can be quite confusing for some colleges and for some employers. Of course, that needs to be robust. That needs to obviously ensure that across the board GCSEs are challenging and we're not dumbing down any of the qualifications. But I think in terms of any confusion in the system, particularly later on then when you go to apply for universities and so on, it's absolutely clear that children in Wales, they have that set of qualifications and there's no ambiguity. Right, where are we going to send Lisa next? Um, I'm Scott Charles. I'm a PGC secondary drama student. Uh, I kind of have a double question, it is. So the first one is, when going into a school, a lot of uh, approaches a school will take is a carousel programme towards different subjects. So what are your opinions on using carousel within your own schools or within your own academic studies? And then the second question would be, when we look towards the new pedagogical style of innovative learners, we look towards the four core purposes, is the carousel itself actually crippling this approach? Because if we think about how we try to teach them a certain amount of topic and we got to get them to a set goal of they must learn this in-depth knowledge of, say, drama, where we look at Brecht, Stanislavski, every kind of practitioner. How do we ensure that the four core purposes, goal of our own subject knowledge, kind of coexisting? And Scott, sorry to interrupt, but speaking in practice, are we talking about a very limited amount of hours in, let's say, drama, and then the carousel to the next yeah, subject, yeah. and they've got a very kind of reduced amount of time in each discipline? I, I suppose from a secondary level and, and obviously putting curricula in place, um, many decisions the school make in, in, at secondary level in particular are down to the resources they have. Um, sometimes it doesn't go as, as deep as really thinking about curricula and thinking about 
um, you know, the, the way things are implemented. It, it is basically we have one drama teacher, we have one music teacher, and therefore we have to design a curriculum around the resources we have. So whilst I'd love to give you a, a very deep and meaningful answer, it, sometimes it does come down to resources, it comes down to um, the staffing in a particular school, why they might choose to do a particular uh, carousel approach. Just to reassure you, just in case you're a little bit downhearted, in my school that simply doesn't happen. We have a, a very, very established drama department, music department that's thriving. Um, you know, we, we'd like to think that we're one of the forefront in, in the whole of Wales in, in that sense. So not all schools have a carousel approach and, and do things that way. Um, I understand your, your frustrations, absolutely. Um, and it would be great if all schools across Wales were resourced and, and had this kind of infinite amount of money to be able to do these things really, really well. But the reality basically is that that's not the case. And therefore, sometimes I appreciate, yes, a carousel approach can have its disadvantages, unfortunately. Schools have their own ecological natures, characteristics, dispositions, and we're going to have an environmental change now with the curriculum framework coming in, which means that that ecology will shift to, to match what those purposes are, for instance, and what we what the performance of teaching is and, and what we think the performance of learning is and stuff. So I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how things like carouseling and other kind of organizational logistical approaches will shift, but we just really don't quite know yet. And I think it's asking that fundamental question about why. Why are you having carousel approaches? And if it is, uh, if they can genuinely rationalize that they're having it because it develops the four purposes or develop it to, or learning progression, then fine. But if it's just because, well, we've got only a certain number of hours, we've got only a certain number of teachers, we're doing it this way, then that's a question that needs to be brought up. Yeah. And it'll, it'll come back to as the school starts to develop their vision for the new curriculum and for the subjects that are in the expressive arts AOLE and how they're going to develop that AOLE. The, the practical considerations of timetabling, number of lessons, etc., staffing, all of that, you know, that that's the that should come after the real consideration of the of their vision and their approach that they want to take, um, and hopefully practicalities will allow them to. Should we send Lisa on a mission? There was a hand all the way down here, wasn't there? You were halfway there. <laughs> Hi, my name's Jonah Graham, uh, PGC Secondary Geography. Um, my question's more directed towards Dr. Kevin Smith. Uh, but could be answered uh, towards any of the panelists. As you can also tell, I have a bit of a funny accent as well. Uh, not from the US, but from Canada, so also uh, from that side of the world. Um, my question uh, more pertains to uh, your research on uh, different uh, curriculums, um, as well as uh, the different approaches. Uh, on the onset of uh, the knowledge that there was a new curriculum coming up to Wales, did you have any concerns with the initial uh, presentation of it? And if so, um, how were those concerns appeased over that development of the curriculum? You mean how it was rolled out to everyone, or what? With, with just like the first preliminary information regarding the, that new curriculum. Well, what was really funny was there, there was a lot of misinformation. Um, and I think a lot of the language that was used suggested more radical changes than what were actually occurring. And this idea that this is a, a new curriculum, it's new to us, but these concepts and the philosophies that have been organized, they've been around you know, at different places, like uh, as Sunny mentioned, with uh, portions of it in New Zealand, parts of it in Canada, but also we can look at the International Baccalaureate as having these ideas. Um, we've had um, Wiggins and Mateague talking about big ideas and what's matter statements and backwards curriculum planning for years. Um, that's fed into the uh, core curriculum, um, the, uh, I got a mind blank, but the 
curriculum core that's in the United States now. Common core. Common core. Thank you very much. <laughs> and um, but that's also been influenced by other philosophies as well, such as Hirsch and, and other folks. So um, I, I think that initial change was also exacerbated by the scale of change, mm -hmm. and also um, heightened fears were heightened through the speed through which change was happening. And so the whole landscape was being shifted in an enormous uh, way. And, uh, and I think that just kind of got everybody a little overexcited um, because really many of the things that are being talked about, they're not so revolutionary, um, but there's just a lot going on at the speed and stuff like that. So. Lovely Alex. Hi, um, my name's Alex Walker. I'm a primary um, PGCE student. I was just wondering with the new curriculum and the new continuum, um, with the progression step three now crossing that boundary between year six and year seven, and we're looking to kind of aid that continuum, that's traditionally a really tricky uh, and quite difficult transition period as it is anyway. And as you mentioned earlier, um, primary schools are now able to kind of endorse that new curriculum a little bit easier than potentially the, the secondary schools are. So how would you advise then us as new practitioners going into both secondary and primary to aid that transition and how are we going to adopt this curriculum continuum across this particular progression step? Um, the cluster approach that was talked about earlier I think is, is probably the best way. So the difficulty we have in Wales is that for instance, uh, the schools that we feed, Stanwell and St Richard Gwynn, they would take in pupils from probably more than 20 primary schools. So if you have a closed cluster, as some Catholic clusters might be Church in Wales and Welsh Medium, then it's a much easier task because then you would try and get a, a, a real continuum, <clears throat> maybe from 3 to 16, maybe from 3 to 14, and then thinking about GCSEs, which some schools are already considering. Broaderin um, Bro in Cardiff, for instance, they've already decided and come together now and they've had multiple meetings about having a 3 to 14 curriculum across the primaries and the secondary. That is a wonderful model. If they can do it, they will be the true pioneers. They'll be the first and let's hope they do a really, really good job. Where you have 20 feeder primary schools um, and, and the individual primaries like mine feed three schools, for instance, that's really, really difficult. So, so you would hope that you would have even better communication than we have now across transition. Um, and then you just have to try and make sure that you're being faithful to the what matter statements themselves and the consistency will come through. Maybe not in the ways that we approach things because there could be inquiry-based learning, knowledge-rich learning and so on. But the fact that if you're true to the what matters, um, then hopefully that journey will carry on in high school. But cluster approach is definitely the, the best possible scenario. Yeah, I'd endorse that. Um, for you to be aware, we are currently in the middle of that process, actually. Um, Stanwell School and some of its feeder schools, as Gath alluded to, we do have a lot of feeder schools. But some of our feeder schools we're looking into at the moment... Uh, cross collab collab collaboration. Um, we've even toyed with the idea of being a, a genuine and true pioneer where early discussions have taken place whether some of our year seven teachers can go down into primary school and whether some primary school teachers can come up to teach our year sevens and so on to have that kind of true collaboration and in terms of planning and in terms of delivering a kind of a seamless transition then in terms of the AOLEs. But all of these things are in very, um, you know, fledgling uh, circumstances at the moment. It's it's something that's just being discussed, shall we say, uh, and only the future will kind of show whether those things work. It's I think it is easier 
when you have a through school, as, it, as it's called, and, and I know that Ascol um, Bromaganuga uh, in the Vale of Glamorgan, that's a through school, and, and colleagues there are finding this transition process with the new curriculum a, a little bit easier. So, um, yeah, structures as well obviously come into play there. Like we have the benefit of, of the framework acting as a continuum mm. that's supposed to help us guide us on a smooth way. Um, but then you have different schools with different school cultures, different locations. They have different values. They've got different visions for what that's happening. Then you also have, I've been doing some research where I surveyed teachers about how satisfied they felt with the current levels of agency. And the data show so far that primary teachers feel like they're, they're, they are saying they're far more happy with their level of agency than secondary school teachers are. So there's something then to be learned about why do those primary school teachers feel like they have more agency how are they exercising their agency and if secondary schools feel like theirs is constrained and that then how what can they learn from the primary school arrangement that will then help us understand the shift between the the primary and secondary for instance we've probably got time for about two more questions um so could just raise your hand if you've definitely got one more question to answer. I think, Lisa, if we go to this person here, and then if you go back in that direction, and then we've got those two nailed. Done. <laughs> um, so I'm Paige, and I am PGCE uh, Geography. So essentially, each school can design their unique curriculum and teach essentially what they want, as long as it's based off the What Matter statement. When it comes to assessments, are exam boards such as WJC given a whole like Wales exam or will it be unique to that school and what they're teaching and then if it is unique to that school how does that affect the schools in England that do use the WJEC exam board? Very good question actually because yeah, there are lots of schools in England that use the WJEC exam board and WJEC have got split so they have a different section for it. Uh, schools in England and a different section for us which is comparable but actually for the different audiences but it's not only just the what matters the descriptions of learning that we have as well are uniform and that's our national level framework so it has to adhere to those so whatever schools will teach will have to adhere to the, the description of learning as well as the what matters and this is why we're trying to say very quickly and it's been echoed quite a lot here is that don't go rushing to teach to, to what matters don't go structurally arrange your school to what matters don't teach directly to the description of learning actually take a step back and think of what is that vision and philosophy for your school and for your learners. And qualifications wills will, and quite rightly so, they've put off their qualification changes till quite late on. And what they've said in early publications that it will reflect the curriculum. So they're using the descriptions of learning, they're using the what matters, and they are consulting with practitioners of what the suite of qualifications would look like. And then they will then ward, work with the awarding bodies. If the awarding bodies, the WJC, if they don't adhere with what that's going to happen, then they won't get their awarding uh, sanctions. So therefore, that's the whole process we have in government, looking all the way to 2025, 2027, when the first qualifications will start coming into play. So it's not the qualifications will say, right, five years down the line here, here's the exams, completely different from the curriculum, completely different from what we've done for the last 10 years. It's actually gonna resonate with that. And that's one of the reasons why we have an arm's length body of qualifications Wales, and it's not mandated directly by government. Yes, yeah, so when, obviously when, when there's a qualification that is developed, um, you know, there, there will have to be a specification that, that goes alongside that. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's the purpose of, of the awarding body is to develop the specification that goes with the qualification. Um, and the, but the process comes out of the curriculum as it is now. Um, that, that's, that's all I'd add, really. Thank you. And our final question. 
Hi, uh, Conor Brewer, PGC Primary. I had a question specifically for Gareth. Um, you seem incredibly confident in the curriculum that your school has put together and the stats you've shown us back that up. Uh, would you consider using that and uh, suggesting that as a template for other primary schools less confident in designing their own curriculum? Or was the process of designing it one of the reasons that made it a success? You've almost answered your own question. Um, it, it's a really good question. Um, as I said, we started this process very soon because of the, the timing of our inspection and because of the good things that we had going on, but also the concerns that we had within the school about our practice. Um, we, we started um, pretty much two, three months after the publication of Successful Futures on our journey. So even before we became a pioneer school, which was in the second tranche, so not until 2017, we'd already started looking at Successful Futures and everything, all those books that I held up, everything that we have read has always been through the lens of Successful Futures. Um, and that's why, as um, Dr. Kevin mentioned earlier, there's so many myths around Successful Futures. People need to go back to the document again and again because um, it really did set a, a, a direction of travel rather than the, the myths of it's this and it's that. So the, the journey for us was um, a team effort. And so even though uh, I initially said, I really like these books, these texts, I think you should look at this, I think you should listen to these podcasts, I think you should look at these things. We actually set a curriculum development team of five that included foundation phase and uh, key stage two and senior leadership. We did all the research together. We brought in curriculum experts from England and from Wales. We went, I went out to a school that was running a, a really successful curriculum in Virginia. I went to the University of Virginia and talked to Hirsch personally, talked to Willingham, went and met Doug Lamov and Daisy Christodoulou in London, got Daisy Christodoulou to come and work with our school directly. So there's, there's been lots of different things, or through, through phones and so on. There's been lots of different things that we have done in the school that we really understand because of those direct contacts that we have had. If, um, if we said to other schools, this is how to do it, they wouldn't be able to understand it. They wouldn't be able to do it in the same way. So even though we've developed models that we think can be transferred, actually the journey that we've been on is the biggest lesson for others. So, so taking the steps of that journey of looking at what you do right now. So we, we sorry to talk just a little bit more, but um, we, we have used the analogy of what goes on in the BA hangar down at Roos. They take in a jumbo jet every um, say six months and they take it apart. They take out every single screw within uh, the cabin. So they take apart every seat, they, they replay, uh, replace the carpets, they take away the blades of the engine and, and then reconstruct the whole of the airplane. That's exactly what we did as a school. So from how we line up in the playground to how we teach, to why we teach to what are we trying to achieve in the school we rebuilt the airplane nobody really can uh, take them what we have as a product and put that into their school because it's unique to us but the journey that we've been on in rebuilding the airplane they absolutely could so you could say these are the steps that we've taken this is the research we've done go away consult talk to parents talk to pupils talk to governors what do you want to achieve use all of that information on that journey and then you'll have your own product and that's really what the government wants of all schools in Wales right now that's what they're asking for for each school and each cluster to come up with their own curriculum by following those kind of processes if I could just jump really quickly and end <laughs> of that and the reason why I think that's sound advice is because what they've done in their school was informed by their personal philosophies, their values, their politics, their big P politics and their little P politics. And politics are simply just how we negotiate our private desires within the public sphere. So we're talking about, you know, how we get along with each other too. But so, so you, that's their particular chemical formula. 
And if you just try to re reproduce that, it wouldn't always click in different schools because they're going to have their own little chemical formula. So, mm. yeah, it's, it really does come down to what values are we embedding in our practice? And I think that is all we've got time for because it's uh, the end of the session. So thank you very much to all five of our panellists. just take the opportunity to remind you of some of the kind of key messages to go away to read to inquire to ask why to collaborate to discuss and to carry on doing what you're doing thank you very much goodbye that was emma and tom's pgce podcast presented by emma fayer and tom breeze it was recorded live at Cardiff Metropolitan University's School of Education and Social Policy on Friday the 31st of January 2020, three days after the publication of the new Curriculum for Wales. The panellists were Dr Kevin Smith from Cardiff University, Gareth Rain from St Joseph's Roman Catholic Primary School in Panarth, Barry Crompton from Stanwell School also in Panarth, Nikki Hagendyke from the Education Achievement Service Regional Consortium and Sunny Singh from the Welsh Government. The microphone on a very long wire was expertly manoeuvred by Lisa Fenn and the questions came from student teachers on our PGCE primary and PGCE secondary programmes. Our grateful thanks also to the additional panellists who substituted in the afternoon repeat of the event and who you can hear in our bonus episode that also came out today. Catherine Lewis from Central South Consortium who replaced Nikki Hagendyke and Lewis Hopkin from the Welsh Government who replaced Sunny Singh. Microphone on a long wire duties for the bonus episode were expertly discharged by Gemma Mitchell. Whatever passes for our normal service will be resumed in a fortnight. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.